This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Iyad Hussami, a host of this channel. In my research as a doctoral student in the School of English at the University of Leeds, I'm working on ecology and agriculture in post-independence Lebanon, and my project is supported by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council through the White Rose College of the Arts and Humanities. Today on the show, we will be speaking with Munira Hayat about her new book, A Landscape of War, Ecologies of Resistance and Survival in South Lebanon. Welcome, Munira. Thank you so much, Iyad, for having me. Please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. We're so happy to hear from you today. Great. Um, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Um, so uh, my name is Munira Hayat. Um, I'm Lebanese, uh, but I teach at the American University in Cairo, where I am right now. I'm sitting on my balcony in Cairo in the winter sunshine. Um, I teach anthropology. I'm a graduate of Columbia University in anthropology, uh, and I've been here in Cairo since 2013. Um yeah, um, my work is on um, war, um, which is a topic that uh, not only consumes my intellectual life, but has been a big um, shaper of who I am, uh, because I grew up in Lebanon um, during um, the Lebanese war or the Lebanese civil war, which lasted for um, the entirety of my childhood. Um, of course, in the aftermath of that, um, I um, experienced uh, numerous other um, wars in Lebanon uh, and the ongoing um, disasters that continue to engulf um, my homeland. Um, Yeah, that's a bit about me. (laughs) Okay, nice to have you from Cairo. And so your book, um, which I'm very excited to discuss today, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of this project? Yes. Um, So um, this book is about life and war. Um, And as I just mentioned, um, this is something that uh, I am both a student of and a uh, subject of. Um, And um, I always wanted to work on war. Um, But it was a confounding uh, topic for me um, in the aftermath of, um, you know, the end of the war that consumed my childhood, um, as I couldn't really find it in the world uh, in ways that um, sort of uh, brought it um, uh, close to my senses. Um, 
fortunately or unfortunately, rather, I would say, or, or let me put it this way, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, depending on how you look at it, um, the 2006 war um, uh, in, in, that uh, Israel waged on Lebanon um, that has uh, come to be named, uh, called the July War, um, uh, took place right as I was about to embark um, on my uh, PhD research. Um, and so um, this war um, that was a very destructive war um, uh, uh, brought um, uh, war back into the world in the way that I was able to um, study it and its aftermath um, in uh, the years between the years of 2007 and 2009 where, where I when I did my PhD research. Um, so um, what I was looking at or what I wanted to actually um, uh, um, say about war, and this is what this book is about, um, is um, that war is not merely a place of death and destruction. It's also a place where life goes on. <clears throat> so um, in the aftermath of the 2006 war, um, I went to South Lebanon, which was the one of the major epicenters of this uh, very destructive conflict. Um, and lo and behold, um, as was, I mean, as I, I already expected, but um, I saw before my eyes, life was already um, uh, resuming um, um, uh, and sort of uh, bursting out of the rubble, um, and people were pursuing their life ways once again. Um, and so what, what I look at in my work on war, um, which makes it different in uh, attention and in framing from much of the work that has been done on war, is um, its focus on life rather than death and creativity rather than destruction. That's a beautiful way of uh, uh, introducing the book. Um, and maybe we can continue staying on um, some of these key terms uh, and discuss some of the core concepts in your introduction. So um, your title, A Landscape of War, uh, let's start there. You conceptualize war in your introduction as beyond the violent event. You foreground its qualities as an experience and also as an object of analysis. You define war at one turn as, quote, a living environment, and you even endow war with seasons, Mawasim al-Harib. Meanwhile, landscape, in your work, is a medium and a method. Landscape allows consideration of these twin forces of care and destruction that define war. So I'm curious about the tension between landscape and war. Does that mean landscape is not a living environment or context in your work? Why or why not? Okay, great. Thank you so much for this question. Um, so yes, the book is called A Landscape of War. And the reason that I um, uh, center landscape, so to speak, um, is because landscape it defies um, um, being centered. Um, landscape is many things. Landscape is both space and time. It is process, um, and it is um, and it proceeds in ter in terms of textures, in terms of um, uh, cycles of growth, um, in terms of the seasons, um, in terms of the ground beneath one's feet, in terms of where one calls home. Um, so landscape is many, many things. It's a framing that defies truly framing, right? Um, and that's what I mean by landscape being both a medium and a method, because it is indeed what I look at in order to find war, because I refuse to look at war directly, and I'll, I'll speak more about that in a moment. Um, 
Um, but landscape um, uh, is uh, is a very useful um, medium because of its heterogeneity and a method that allows one to look at a multi, like a multitude of things um, that hold together in 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 place um, without it being overwhelmed by a singular framing. So this is what I mean by landscape. And to answer your question about whether landscape is a living environment, a living environment or not, um, um, it is. Um, uh, landscape is not this perspect- perspectival framing device that was developed, you know, by painters in the um, uh, 16th century. Um, but it is um, uh, understood more in terms of living processes, in terms of space, in terms of place, and in terms of, of time. So landscape is a constant becoming. And it really, uh, I mean, it's a great sort of framing device for South Lebanon, because South Lebanon is an, kind of an overwhelmingly potent landscape, because South Lebanon is Jabal Amil, it is Galilee, right? It is... I mean, it has biblical significance, but it also has significance, I mean, through the ages, right? It's a a site of uh, Roman ruins, of Roman, I mean, Roman uh, activity and presence. It's a site of crusader castles. Um, It's a site of um, 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 uh, agricultural processes um, that uh, that transcend, um, you know, um, the the um, more um, uh, the shorter, let's say, lifespans of humans, such as olive cropping, right? Um, and it's also a site where uh, people plant tobacco, which is a more uh, sort of uh, uh, human-centric and, capital- and capitalist-driven um, cash crop um, that has been actually um, planted in South Lebanon from the 16th century. Um, landscape is also very important to war because this is a site, South Lebanon is a site of guerrilla warfare. So this is, um, um, it's, a, it's a landscape where mechanized uh, sort of um, aggression, like a military aggression on behalf of the Israelis has often met its match in uh, the resistance that is um, uh, mounted by various uh, resistant, resistance forces in South Lebanon, from the Palestinians to the leftist forces, the communists and others, um, to uh, the current day uh, mili- military presence um, of Hezbollah. So the landscape is really, really important in all of these respects. So it's a very, I mean, as a, in terms of a framing device or an unframing device, let's say, um, it's, it's very potent in that sense. So that's why I call it a medium and a method. And methodologically, one, as, as an anthropologist, I seek to get really close to the grounds of life, right? And so um, for me, it allows me to follow um, mu- multiple paths into this topic of war, which I seek to uh, sort of uh, lure away or center away from uh, its um um, it's sort of hegemonic um, heart, uh, as it is uh, generally understood, which is violence, right? So um, in South Lebanon, war is everywhere, not only in these recurrent episodes of destruction that come uh, that come to, um, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, impact the area. Um, and so the way in which people continue to live in this land, uh, in this landscape, the way in which they cultivate 
um, their crops and care for their livestock and live with each other in these small farming villages um, is, is addressed or is generated by um, these recurring, recurring seasons um, of war. Um, so this is how I uh, conceptualize war beyond the violent event, because in South Lebanon, war is something that has been ongoing since uh, the, the creation um, of um, uh, Israel in the land of Palestine in 1948, since the Nakba. Um, Lebanon and Israel have been at war. Um, and so um, there have been episodes of war, but there's a structural sort of uh, um, configuration of war that defines um, life in this world. And people have been living through, in and through this uh, for generations now. Um, so, um, so, so war here um, is, is, uh, is, is more than like episodes of militarized conflict, right? War has come to actually generate the way in which life and landscape um, um, uh, you know, proceed um, in, um, uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this sort of corner of the planet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's stay with that multi-generational perspective and move to your first chapter, A Brief History of War in South Lebanon. I was really struck by your recollection of the moment in the year 2000, the first morning following Israel's withdrawal from South Lebanon following almost, I guess, a 20-year occupation. You describe many aspects of South Lebanon. It's a liminal space. It's an agricultural backwater. As you have just said, it's a battlefield for more than 70 years. And it's also one of the most densely militarized strips of earth, to quote you. So too was I moved by your account of the terrible 2006 war, part of which I lived through in Beirut, and the post-war reconstruction frenzy. This chapter formulates the groundwork for the idea of, quote, resistant ecologies prevalent in your subtitle. How do you understand such ecologies and why do the survival strategies of such ecologies matter? Great. Um, So um, resistant ecologies is one of the central um, concepts that I um, formulate or phrase or or actually coin in this book. Um, And uh, and what I mean by resistant ecologies um, are the um, relations um, that humans and other beings um, forge um, through um, uh, the difficulties that um, um, life uh, presents um, in order to continue um, to uh, to be alive. So resistant ecologies, I mean, emerges out of the, you know, the fertile and potent landscape of South Lebanon. And in the book, I look at various uh, ecologies. um, And these are um, tobacco farming, uh, goat herding, the relationship of um, uh, the villagers um, and the the gorillas uh, to the woodlands um, and the spirit-infused uh, nature um, that uh, is understood or sort of recognized as being protective of the life that proliferates within it. Um, I also think of, of human-human relationships as ecologies. People need each other, the kinship that is forged, um, um, even across 
um, sort of the lines of um, um, uh, of enmity. Um, so um, I, I, I stay with the, uh, the metaphor of landscape and ecology is to sort of draw um, sort of my ethnography um, uh, together in a, in a cohesive manner. Um, but, um, but resistant ecologies can be adapted to or, or under, understood or sort of used beyond um, the, the bucolic and the rural um, in, uh, in places like, uh, you know, I don't, Beirut today. Um, uh, this, I mean, the, the, this world is a, is a very harsh one. It's a very difficult one. Uh, people are struggling with all kinds of um, um, insurmountable uh, difficulties uh, to sort of just make things work. Um, and, uh, and they need to rely um, on each other uh, in creative ways. Um, and, uh, and I mean, of course, it's a resistant form of uh, defying the destructive uh, forces of uh, the nation state, of capitalism, of war, right? Um, and uh, and um, climate change, all the kinds of harshness and disasters that are being that are brought upon um, uh, those who must continue to live um, <clears throat> on this planet uh, can be described. I mean, the 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 the, the um, let's say the struggle to stay alive in unlivable worlds um, is what I um, call resistant ecologies. Um, yeah. <laughs> Moving now to fieldwork in these ecologies, you articulate in your book with gorgeous and captivating detail the experience of doing research at home in South Lebanon. Your second chapter, Battle Slash Field, charts your journey in the field starting in 2007. We meet some of the key characters who become your primary interlocutors as you navigated class, sectarian, and patriarchal politics. What surprises you most as you reflect on your positionality as an anthropologist and your own life experiences in South Lebanon? Um, this is a wonderful question, and it's one that um, um, I've reflected on a lot. Um, it's really hard to do uh, field work um, in at home. Um, uh, the um, opportunities that are sort of uh, furnished by a closeness, um, apparent closeness, let's say, um, to one's interlocutors, um, is also um, uh, thwarted, let's say, by the kinds of um, social barriers that emerge through this closeness, right? Um, but I mean, this book is a very intimate book and it's a book about war as an intimate object. Um, and so I feel, I mean, th as, I, as I chart in, in chapter two, um, the kinds of what I call minefields that one needs to navigate in order to sort of um, uh, uh, access um, um, the you know the 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 beating heart of the um, of the theme that one is is, is striving for. Um, um, I 
I, I mean, it, it was a long process, right? I, I, I started to go to South Lebanon. I mean, the first time I actually entered South Lebanon was on the day of its liberation. And I described that um, in the book. It was, a, it was an uh, overwhelming moment, a life-changing moment for me um, to enter this uh, newly liberated uh, place of my country that I had only ever known as occupied. And also beyond that, <clears throat> to finally see with my own eyes the land of Palestine, which I had grown, uh, of course, up um, under the um, struggle for, the love for, um, to see it with my own eyes and to recognize the closeness of something that had been pitched in my life or sort of understood in my life as a, the, the uh, uncrossable distance of enmity, right? So this notion of sort of the, the structuring and, and distancing sort of structure of enmity um, <clears throat> was really kind of undermined by the by my entering this space that was now suddenly accessible and to be get so close um, to Palestine. Um, these were overwhelming experiences um, and I wrote about them and have been writing about them for decades now. Um, so 2000 and then I worked as, I was as, I was working as a journalist at the time um, and then uh, you know when I started my PhD I started to do my field work in South Lebanon and then uh, the writing of the dissertation was one iteration in which I sort of processed the experiences that I encountered um, in the field and then after that the rewriting of the dissertation into the book. Um, and what I find actually most surprising <clears throat> about the process of, I mean, uh, researching one's home, the closeness, the intimacy, um, is that through the writing of it, um, um, a lot of the um, uh, uh, characters and the episodes that I have come to describe become um almost kind of literary um, uh, figures uh, to my mind. Sometimes as I'm writing and rewriting and sort of like delving back into the memory of in order to flesh out a particular detail, um, I find myself struggling with um, um, the, the perception um, uh, of, of, of writing and life kind of becoming one and the same. Is this life? Or is this the writing of it, right? Um, and I mean, I don't know if, if that makes much sense, but I find that actually uh, to be one of the more remarkable experiences of um, um, uh, of having written um, uh, uh, about um, a topic that I have also lived and uh, loved and sought to sort of uh, portray in the most intimate, but also in the most kind of, uh, theoretically original uh, manner possible. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Those are um, really invaluable and um, precious insights um, on your process. And undergirding your book, as you've already alluded to, is the threat of tobacco. Your third chapter, titled The Bitter Crop, considers tobacco from a kaleidoscope of perspectives, political economy, Ottoman and post-Ottoman history, the nuances of its sowing, harvest, and production, and the socialization and oral and narrative culture around it. Women emerge as the manual laborers of the industry, while men reap the profit. The crop's financial economy is governed by the state monopoly, the notorious regi, and regulated somehow by the state or, to quote you, parastate authorities such as Hezbollah. You parse the contradictions of tobacco cultivation, 
its paradoxes, how it ensnares people amid, quote, industrial military wreckage, and how it's also a rooting life force in contrast to, say, fruit trees, which maybe I'll let you explain. Throughout, tobacco is resistant. I would like to ask you about the properties, these counterintuitive logics, tobacco's qualities as refuge that you assign to the crop. And moreover, I'm really curious to ask the inverse of the question at the base of the chapter. As opposed to what and how does tobacco resist, what or who is resisting tobacco and how? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. Yeah, tobacco is truly, I mean, the backbone of the area. It's a very, very interesting um, uh, crop, uh, one that has been present um, as a um uh, 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 has been present uh, since Ottoman times. Um, the Ottomans established it, I think, in the 16th century as a monopoly. It was then taken over by the French uh, during the mandate, and then it was uh, nationalized uh, by uh, the Lebanese state um, in the 90s. Uh, after the uh, the end of the uh, civil war. Um, the tobacco is a very, very interesting uh, creature. <laughs> uh, as a crop, um, it's a very hardy one. Um, it grows uh, almost um, spontaneously, one could say, in the highlands of South Lebanon. It needs very little infrastructure. It doesn't need uh, irrigation. Um, it, uh, once it is, uh, it is um, you know, uh, cultivated, uh, uh, once the seedlings are transplanted into the ground um, in February and March, um, it, it grows up in its own um, in the in the fields. Um, it doesn't need large surface area, so it can be planted almost anywhere in the hilly topography um, of uh, South Lebanon. Um, and it's harvested in uh, across the three months of uh, high summer, um, June, starting in June, uh, July, and then ending in August. Um, uh, the leaves are harvested from the bottom up, uh, with the top, the bottom leaves being the biggest and the least uh, nicotine rich, to the top leaves being the most tender and the most nicotine rich, and so the most valuable. Um, those who plant tobacco have always been um, the, the local villagers. Um, the villages of South Lebanon um, are mostly um, um, uh, Shia and uh, Maronite, uh, but you also have um, some Druze villages, and now you have uh, some Sunni villages, which are the settled um, uh, Bedou um, uh, of South Lebanon, uh, some of whom also now plant tobacco. But uh, traditionally, it was mostly the, the, the Shia and the Maronites uh, communities and villages that, that planted tobacco. So um, uh, prior to uh, the current moment, um, uh, the, the villagers would, of course, uh, uh, be uh, uh, working for, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a monopoly. So it's a licensed economy owned by first the Ottoman empire, then the French state, then the Lebanese state. Uh, those who plant it have to have a license uh, that decrees how much, uh, tobacco can be planted at the end of the season. Uh, the tobacco is, uh, then, um, uh, taken by the monopoly. And now it's sold to the monopoly because those who planted actually, um, uh, you know, own their tobacco crops. But prior to this moment, before the re redistribution of the licenses in the 1990s um, and in the 1970s, 
Um, it was um, most of the licenses were consolidated in the hands of the ruling elites, and so of course the peasants who farmed the crop um, got got nothing from it. Um, so it has a long, harsh history here in South Lebanon that that does uh, cohere with um, the history of feudalism in the area of the of the rule of landlords and the zama, and then the sort of the emergence of a um, resistant um, a peasant. Uh, class, a farming class that then took, um, uh, you know, the um, uh, the mode of production into their own hands, so to speak. So today, uh, most people who plant tobacco in South Lebanon own their own licenses, and they sell their crops at the end of the season uh, to the monopoly at a subsidized price. So at a, at a stabilized, as a state stabilized price. So um, this is one. I mean, it's a, it's a harsh history, but it's one that is remarkably kind of um, consistent throughout all of the upheavals that Lebanon and the region sort of underwent from the fall of the Ottoman Empire through the British and French mandates, um, through the, you know, the era of the nation states and the on, onset of wars with the establishment, you know, after the establishment of the of the state of Israel. Um, so tobacco has been a, a consistent thread throughout this that has sort of transformed with uh, alongside the, the capacity of the uh, um, uh, the cultivating uh, you know classes to um, make uh, a profit out of their own labor. Now the interesting thing about tobacco and war is that um, tobacco works well with the time spaces of war uh, because it is a it is a resilient um, uh, you know sort of weed. Um, uh, it doesn't require um, uh, too much infrastructure. Infrastructure is always uh, problematic in places of war. Um, it also is a crop that relies on uh, domestic labor. So the labor of women, the labor of children, um, and in an area where many men um, labor elsewhere, either abroad, um, in the diaspora, or in the, in the, you know, the major cities of Lebanon, um, or they're fighting. Um, so the villages are mostly um, inhabited by uh, women, uh, the elderly, and children, and those are the folks who actually work tobacco. So in many ways, um, it's a supplemental income that actually allows people to stay at home in their villages through seasons of um, uh, warfare um, and uh, and allows them to have a, a, cons a consistent or a reliable income um, uh, at the end of each um, agricultural season. Um, so... Um, uh, it, uh, it it's resistant in that sense, uh, and uh, the locals actually um, uh, call it such. Um, they uh, they uh, call it nabtat um, al They call it the resistant um, crop, um, but they also uh, call it nabtat al murra, which is. Um, the bitter crop, right? Um, and I like to uh, sort of draw attention to the sort of, the, I mean, to the, the ambiguous sort of faces of tobacco as both a life-giving, but also kind of a, um, a life-sapping um, uh, um, uh, uh, cycle, let's say, or agricultural um, uh, effort um, um, uh, or plant, um, because it's a it's a cash crop um, that that nobody can eat. I mean, this is something also that the locals tell you, um, and it. But everybody res and everybody resents it because it's something that they work 
they work, they labor, um, and then they sell and it's gone. Uh, and then they get the cash. Um, but everybody at the same time that they feel resentful for the sort of the harsh history, the bitter history of tobacco, they're also all grateful for the consistent life-giving uh, capacity of this crop. And everybody says in South Lebanon, ultimately, after they have listed all of the sort of the, the woes of um, and, and the troubles and the harshness of tobacco farming, farming they all remind me, tobacco is what makes us live. Um, and to answer your the final question in this uh, in this uh, um, uh, fascinating section um, is you want to you you ask um, uh, uh, the inverse of the question at the ba- uh, that's at the base of the chapter as opposed to what and how does tobacco resist or who is resisting tobacco and how I mean. Um, Anybody who can sort of get away from the drudgery of tobacco farming does. So everybody says tobacco tobacco makes us live, tobacco is what taught us. But the moment that one has an ability to kind of not farm tobacco, they're out of there. So in, in some ways, I mean, it's really like the last recourse of those um, who have nowhere else to go. And I think this is actually really important because many people actually, when they're looking at war or spaces of war, they often fail to note um, uh, the lives of those who truly, I mean, those who stay, who truly have nowhere else to go, right? Um, people pay attention to refugees. People pay attention to those who have gone out. Pay, people pay attention to those who who get who are killed. But those who stay and those who struggle and those who resist and those who are steadfast within these really unlivable worlds um, are who I'm paying attention to. And tobacco, yes, it is a harsh crop. Yes, it is a you know um, it is an, a nasty you know capitalist industry. But from the perspective of those who have to live in those harsh worlds, it is a lifeline, right? Now, it's really funny. So on the one hand, those who plant tobacco also resist it because they, I mean, by resisted it, resisted by actually moving on if they can. But there's also this really um, ironic um, sort of perspective and uh, critique, let's say, that one can, one can launch against uh, humanitarian structures that occasionally pay attention to worlds of war. So humanitarianism pays attention at moments when sort of like war zones uh, burst into the international eye. And so uh, they come into these worlds and they say, okay, how can we help? Um, And so you have often uh, efforts in South Lebanon to aid agriculture. Um, so you have efforts that that look at uh, uh, water harvesting. You have efforts that look at olive, um, you know, olive pressing. Uh, you have you you look at efforts that try to encourage Southerners to move on to uh, more wholesome crops such as za'atar, thyme, uh, um, and but nobody wants to touch tobacco. <laughs> because mm. tobacco is not something that humanitarian outfits will go near. So ironically, it's kind of resisted by humanitarian aid. Um, and it's also resisted by those who have to work it. But um, but it prevails because truly in a place with so many difficulties, it's really, really hard um, to sort of let go of. Moving from this lifeline this thread of tobacco to the deadly technologies of warfare. Your fourth chapter titled How to Live and Die in an Explosive Landscape is heartbreaking. It's also breathtaking 
in its eulogies to the herders killed by mines and cluster bomb munitions planted and dropped by Israel in South Lebanon. I was stunned. I was stunned by how in your discussion of the 4.6 million cluster bombs dropped by the Israeli Air Force after the ceasefire agreement in the last days of the 2006 July war, you underscored that these were, quote, largely leftover stock from the munitions used by the U.S. in Vietnam and given to Israel by the U.S. You tell stories about, quote, death and livelihood. And we learn about characters such as Abu Bilal, Am Dawood's cow, and Fatima and Ali. Mines threaten the hills that these people inhabit with their livestock, and mines acquire agency. How do the mines transform the land and multi-species relationships then? Wonderful. Um, so, I mean, similar to uh, tobacco, um, goats are a very hide, hardy uh, life form uh, that humans can um, form um, alliances with in the uh, in their um, uh, struggles to uh, stay alive. So it's a resistant ecology in that sense. Um, and goats, like tobacco, don't need, uh, I mean, they're many, they're hardy, they're rhizomic, they're movable. Um, they can take care of themselves um, if, if necessary, right? So they're not a major investment, um, unlike uh, livestock such as cows um, or um, horses. Um, so in South Lebanon, um, uh, in the same way that folks um, are more and more uh, sort of turning to tobacco and away from, uh, uh, you know, larger and more lumbering or slower, slower temporal life forms such as trees um, that require patience, time, uh, cultivation across years, investment, and the risk of all these investments going up in smoke, right? Because um, Israel wages war on the landscape um, as a source of life in this region, right? So Israel, it's an asymmetrical war situation, and Israel has control of the skies and all kinds of like advanced technologies, um, and it seeks to eradicate um, uh, life um, and the resistance, um, both military and uh, and otherwise, that comes out of this um, landscape. Um, so it attacks the landscape and, try, and seeks to destroy the landscape and to make these landscapes um, sort of unlivable, right? So um, in... Um, um, in um, in attacking the uh, the flora, right? Um, it uh, has um, uh, destroyed the woodlands because woodlands shelter um, uh, gorillas, um, and so it has also destroyed orchards. In, in this regard, so people turn to tobacco, which is hardier and and sort of more movable and less of a of a of an investment. So in when it comes to goats, it's a similar it's a similar move, um, and uh, uh, goats are um, they're small, they're light, they're hardy. Um, they can uh, they can eat every they can eat.
hide uh, anything um, if necessary. Um, and the remarkable thing about goats that I came to find out um, through uh, my research in South Lebanon is that they don't spring uh, anti-personnel mines. Um, South Lebanon is uh, heavily mined um, and it is also heavily cluster bombed. Um, mines, um, I mean, goats, if they step on a mine, they won't trigger it as opposed to a human who steps on a mine and, tr and will trigger it. Um, but there's also the question of cluster bombs, which were thrown uh, by the Israelis, um, uh, you know, coating South Lebanon, in particular the woodlands, um, which are actually more of a, um, a problem and harder to uh, live with because they're more unpredictable. But still, uh, people in South Lebanon have to sort of take uh, life into their own hands, and they can't uh, they can't forsake the land because they need the land in order to be alive. So people um, rely on goats in addition to in terms of livestock, in addition to uh, to tobacco, um, and goat herders um, have found that these uh, wonderful grasslands um, that have sprung up um, in the deforested areas, a deforested and mined areas um, uh, across um, the border uh, between Lebanon and occupied Palestine, Israel, um, um, are a wonderful place uh, for their goats to graze uh, because the goats won't trigger uh, those mines. So they walk, I mean, they, they guide their goats there, uh, walk along those minefields, um, and the goats graze there during um, uh, grazing season. Um, so, um, so the goats have proliferated as a result. So people are now, uh, you know, um, uh, doubling down on tobacco and doubling down on goats and other forms of life, such as the orchards and uh, larger livestock um, have dwindled uh, because people really need to sort of uh, rely on, um, you know, the resistant ecologies that allow them um, to sort of eke a living um, in a pretty unlivable world. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the mines are, uh, are there, uh, people acknowledge them. Uh, they live with them uh, in uh, an almost kind of defiant way. Um, they um, they um, uh, find out, find ways to evade them. And uh, a lot, you know, sort of, um, uh, I call humans and goats walking through minefields, um, a, a mine evading assemblage. Um, but still, this is not an infallible art, right? Um, it's uh, something that is constantly um, potentially deadly. And many of the, uh, the characters, as you mentioned uh, in your question, in this, in this book um, uh, have very violent uh, and uh, ultimately deadly encounters with, uh, with the mines um, and die. Uh, because, uh, I mean, and I, and I, uh, and I uh, often, I mean, and I end on a kind of this, this sad note because it's, it's important to remember that even as I focus on the struggles to, to be alive and to stay alive and to resist by being alive in these deadly worlds, um, the death that is in, within life uh, remains, right? As Amdaoud actually very um, poetically uh, told me and that I, I write about it in, in the book, um, he says, uh, and he, told, he said it to me matter-of-factly. Um, uh, as I was asking him about the mines, you know, that uh, that were in his olives. And he was tell talking to me about, you know, um, uh, his goats and his tobacco and his bees and his little, uh, you know, kitchen garden. Uh, and he said to me, um, you know, death is in human livelihood. That's just the way it is, you know. 
and you just need to um, calm down and to live. That's quite moving. The last chapters of your book, they center around spirits, particular trees, hilltops, including Mlita, which you describe as a curated resistance landmark established by Hezbollah. These chapters also touch on the moral ambiguities of the life worlds in the gray zones of borderlands. It's also a highly introspective conclusion. You interrogate the position of the anthropologist in these circumstances, where wars catastrophes form the nets of life. I love the tensions, most of all, between the resistance, as defined by Hezbollah, and resistant spirits. There's also the tension of accumulated experiences with your interlocutors, some of whom you develop a relationship with over a decade. Moreover, there's a parallel between the moral ambivalences of alliances in the gray zone, once under Israeli occupation, and the ambiguities, dead, undead, that infuse the life worlds under investigation. I'd like to ask you to discuss two images. You describe on the one hand a half-burnt spirit tree, and on the other hand, Imala's body as being split by the border after she stepped on a landmine which damaged her leg, subsequently amputated. What meanings do you apprehend in the half-burnt tree and Imala's amputated body? Wonderful. Um, thank you for this, um, Iyad. Um, the, it's funny. I mean, the <laughs> the, cha the chapters do proceed um, sort of into more mystical zones, um, and um, and I really, I mean, in chapter um, uh, uh, five and six, um, I really kind of look at these um, what I call maskun haunted landscapes and uh, what I refer to as uh, the the gray zone uh, of the borderland. Um, to kind of show um, that, you know, places of war that are often defined um, in terms of um, us and them, black and white, right? It seems to be a clear cut um, sort of a space of, um, uh, of enmity, of political enmity, are actually um, uh, on very on close introspection and from the perspective of those who live in those worlds, um, much more complex, right? So many uh, people who have written about um, their experiences of war um, uh, know this and have sought to describe it. And it's often um, uh, a difficult thing to describe um, because, of, because, of course, one needs to describe it while sort of holding on to one's, um, you know, political convictions um, and stakes, right? So by no means do I endorse um, um, uh, forms of uh, political collaboration, um, with um, with occupiers, let's say, um, uh, of course I do not, uh, but I do seek to highlight, um, you know, the choices that people must make uh, within these really difficult and fraught worlds, um, in order to maximize their ability to live within them. Right. So on one level, there's an ethnographic. Um, 
confusion, right, or profusion of um, um, uh, experience that exceeds the sort of the containers that we often sort of um, resort to in understanding um, social and political worlds. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, uh, there's a need to underline the fact that um, um, resistance is uh, my focus. And I really uh, admire um, the creative strategies that are under that are undertaken um, by those who have few choices in front of them um, to uh, to hold on to life. Okay. So that being said, um, uh, I look at uh, in in the in the chapter entitled Maskun, um, I contrast Mlita, the resistance uh, tourist landmark uh, that was um, uh, erected by Hezbollah um, in uh, 2010, um, to sort of celebrate their uh, divine victory in the aftermath of 2006 um, against uh, this uh, you know deadly um, uh, uh, oppressor and aggressor uh, which is Israel. Lita um, is a fascinating uh, museum, uh, most particularly for me, because it actually utilizes the landscape to tell the story. And, um, and it's located in the lovely lush hills um, in, um, uh, uh, in uh, above Saida, in Sujud, um, in the area of Klima uh, Tafah, um, which used to be the, the border uh, between um, Free Lebanon and occupied Lebanon, the occupation zone, um, and it, and this museum, I mean, narrates, of course, one particular history of resistance, and that's Hezbollah's history of resistance. And as I take, uh, you know, care to point out over and over again in my book, um, Hezbollah is today the hegemonic and military sort of um, uh, force that is dominant in South Lebanon, um, and they have taken over um, uh, the resistance to the extent that they are known as al-Mukhawami, the resistance. But I seek to point out that they are actually at the end, I mean, they are the receivers of a long genealogy of resistance that has military and otherwise that has um, uh, been present in South Lebanon. So Hezbollah's attempt to sort of rest this diverse history of resistance and sort of then refold and, and then fold it into their singular history of resistance is a form of um, um, uh, I, would, I would call like parastate um, violence, right, in writing a particular um, uh, narrative of a place. But because Mlita is actually located in, the Mlita, the actual museum, is located in the landscape, it stays true to form in the heterogeneity of the capacity to, uh, I mean, in the heterogeneity of the landscape and the inability of ideologies to to saturate the landscape. So in Amlita, you have things like, um, uh, you know, haunted shrines, stories of resistant trees, uh, narratives of uh, magical um, uh, magical occurrences, otherworldly presences, the protective spirit of the uh, the protective spirits, the 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 um, the intervention of the divine, 
all these kind of like, you know, spectral, otherworldly, divine um, sort of forces are brought into play. And these are all, you know, narratives that come out of um, life in in villages in South Lebanon and across uh, and across Lebanon um, that are beyond um, just Hezbollah's repertoire. Right. Um, So but I contrast their attempt to sort of like inscribe their narrative on the landscape to another uh, tree, um, uh, a a maskoon tree near a village um, in a ruined hamlet near a village that uh, near the village that I did most of my field work. where this tree is known by the villagers. I mean, it's one amongst many, many trees and other landmarks in South Lebanon that is known to be inhabited by um, a good spirit. Um, They call it Maskun. Um, And people have historically um, uh, made offerings uh, there. It is known um, to, I mean, it is known or is narrated to to shine on uh, on special nights. Um, there are magical stories around it, um, you know, surrounding uh, surrounding the tree and its roots and its spindly fingers. And the tree itself, I mean, is a remarkable presence that I have, you know, uh, encountered across the years. Um, unfortunately, in more recent times, um, it has uh, this area, the, the abandoned hilltop, has been transformed into a um, uh, into an outpost, uh, um, a resistance outpost. So you have young, uh, um, uh, you know, um, armed uh, uh, militants um, uh, hanging out in the. Uh, um, it, it used to be like r- rubble and ramshackle sort of stone structures. They've rebuilt the mosque and they've rebuilt an, an outpost nearby. And now the state is cutting a, a street. Uh, a road uh, through that area. So in a way, it's no longer um, uh, it's no longer sort of a magical other space, but has been sort of really claimed by the forces of the present. Um, and unfortunately, the last time I visited there, um, the tree was uh, was pretty much uh, burnt uh, and uh, and uh, more than half dead. But uh, but people still um, sort of regard it with awe. I use this story to tell the way in which states or parastate forces seek to monopolize um, the possibilities of the present um, and to narrate the multitudinous histories and the realities that are possible within our world um, and to sort of uh, force them into one um, into one narrative. And this is a violent reordering. Right. So I use I use that kind of like tension and that description to, to talk about that. And then finally, Imala's body, uh, Imala uh, lost a leg uh, to a mine um, and uh, her half her family, her daughter, she's Bedou, her daughters um, after the end of the Israeli occupation uh, remained in what she calls a dekhil. So in Israel, they live in Bedouin uh, communities um, in occupied Palestine and Israel today. Um, and Imala lost lost one of her legs uh, uh, one day uh, because she um, uh, her her uh, birth village is right on the border on the other side of the of the border so within occupied Palestine and um, she feared that day that her father um, had died she heard the call to prayer from the mosque of her of her village and she ran without thinking across the minefield and that's how she lost her leg um, and um, and so 
she uh, now, I mean, lives absent a leg, absent her children, absent her uh, her um, uh, birth village. Um, and this, I mean, her riven body or her um, semi-destroyed body is a metaphor, of course, right, for the for the landscapes that have been so violently um, uh, divided and rendered, right, uh, by uh, the politics of enmity um, and warfare. What profound, gut-wrenching realities. <laughs> Maybe we move to um, less uh, grim um, topics um, when we look to what you're working on now. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's less grim, but uh, but yeah, I mean... Um, so right now I'm still kind of... Uh, I mean, my book just came out um, uh, less than a month ago, uh, three weeks ago. Um, so I'm still kind of um, um, awaiting the ma- it's it, you know the magical unfoldings that I was promised happen when a book is released into the world, um, and see and seeing what happens there. I'm still kind of poised in this like you know sort of anticipation of that. Um, but other projects that I'm working on are um, I have this project that I started uh, with my sisters, uh, one of whom is a uh, scholar of literature and the other whom is a, a visual artist, um, around um, our family's entanglement with um, the histories of, um, surprise, surprise, the nation state and capitalism in the Middle East, of course, in wars, but more specifically around the history of oil um, in uh, Arabia um, um, and uh, and beyond. So um, our mother grew up in Aramco, the American Arabian Oil Company. Um, her father was an employee, was a, one, one of the first um, Saudi or Arabian employees uh, of the company, and he spent his whole career there, but he was also a photographer who um, who documented photographically his life there. And so we're, um, my mother wrote a memoir um, based on her life story, but also the images uh, from the archive of her, of her father. And we inherited the archive and our mother's stories. And so we want to tell, retell the story of oil from the perspective of um, the domestic. So often, often these stories are narrated at the level of, you know, the nation state, corporations, sort of disembodied historical events, and also from the perspective of men. But what happens to those stories when they're actually narrated from the intimacies, right, um, of the lived, um, and uh, we call it the intimate as imperial archive. Um, so that's a that's a project that I would love to. I mean, I want to revisit. Um, it's a it's a complicated one, uh, not least because, of course, uh, working with siblings. Is, a, is always a fraught affair as much as it is also uh, productive. Um, and uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a, a, something that I'm, that I'm working on. And another thing that I would like to sort of um, uh, uh, think about more um, is, I mean, I've been teaching here in Cairo um, since uh, 2013. Um, so I started teaching here right in the aftermath um, of the revolution and the counter-revolution. Um, and I found that um, teaching anthropology or the social sciences in a place where the possibilities of the political become more and more constrained, um, there, there, there becomes a sort 
sort of a rush into the refuge of the social sciences as a place that can sort of like um, one can imagine otherwise, one can sort of like, you know, figure out what is going on in the world. So I really want to talk about sort of the centering of the social sciences as both a refuge and a place of imagining otherwise within world, within revolutionary and post-revolutionary worlds. And this includes also, of course, um, Lebanon. And finally, um, sort of riffing on the, on the topic of war, um, I really would like to continue to work on war. I don't think I can ever really let it go. Um, and I'm really, I really would like to, on one hand, write a book about war that is more accessible to sort of the reading public that is not, kind of, not so um, um, academic. Um, I'd like to rethink war um, sort of, um, I mean, I'd like to reframe war theoretically in that book in a way that is accessible. Um, but I would also like to figure out ways of writing um, my, uh, you know, um, more novelistic uh, tendencies um, and kind of write less academically in that regard and more more poetically. So that's pretty much what is on the table. Um, the uh, You know, as soon as I um, can sort of uh, uh, take a breath. <laughs> Those sound like wonderful projects, Monita. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed our discussion and wish you a wonderful end of year and happy new one. Thank you so much, Iyad, for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you.